Anna, more like yeah, baked but it's all potato. Yeah, I had to do it because I have a daughter named Anna, so ah. I felt like she needed her own dish. She did. Um, Much easier than the hash brown thing because hash browns are like roasties, they're darfain, they're hash browns, griddle cakes, they have so many names. Palm Anna is ubiquitous as just Palm Anna. I feel like it is. I always feel like I'm like so, um, I'm very like, I feel like I always have to use the name correctly. I'm like, so it's not really authentic Palm Anna. I did a little Cacio Pepe thing there that. Oh, come that's on. It was cool. It was 2017. It wasn't over yet. Hey, it's not over yet at this time. But the, actually the black pepper and the pecorino like sprinkled between each layer were so nice in there and then you use the extra and you... Uh, mix it with some arugula on top, and, and it makes this like nice natural dressing. It was so good. I'm style. like, that's basically what I'm trying to do is have fried potatoes for dinner, but yeah. by through throwing salad on top, it's a balanced meal. I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison stirs the pot. On today's show, I visit someone you probably know as Smitten Kitchen from Instagram, or cookbooks, or the popular newsletter. Smitten Kitchen is not a staff of food minions, blogging and cooking and taking food pics, somebody barking out orders and figuring things out, following the latest trends. It's actually one person, and her name is Deb Barrowman. And she's delightful. And she's really hardworking and one of the OGs of real food blogging and testing the limits of what you know in food and trying new things. So give it a listen. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it. Write a review on your podcast app. That'll help other people find the show. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and download other episodes like Tom Colicchio Heats Up Leftovers and last week's episode, Gail Simmons Has a Baby. Here's this week's conversation. Deb Perelman is smitten. I'm in a wonderful apartment in Manhattan. <laughs> and I guess this is the, let me get my bearings. This is the village. This is this the, is the uh, East Village. The but East yeah. Village, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's below 14th Street. So that yeah. makes it, I guess, the village. <laughs> it is the village. And it's a beautiful apartment with this amazing terrace. And my guest today is Deb Perelman, <sighs> who is smitten kitchen. And uh, runs an amazingly well-trafficked website that's beautifully designed and runs through recipes and reviews cookbooks and does awesome, interesting work. And that website started way long ago in 2006. (laughs) Is that right? It did. It did. It's 12 years, which is crazy because I'm only 24, how precocious I I must have been in middle school, right? You did a really good job starting from nothing. I know. I'm I'm officially in that, like, does my blog make me look old age? Um, But yeah, so no, I just started as a hobby and then I... um, I just kept doing it, and here we That's go. That's what you have to do with blogs and things like this. But this is how Americans and people in North America learn about food now. And I think that blogs and you know, and the following of cookbooks and the atomizing of one recipe and showing step by step why it works and the beauty of it really reframes America how America cooks. But that's a big question: is is America cooking more? Interesting to yeah I I because I've heard that I that we're not are. but I also feel like we are, we're definitely in this age of curiosity about cooking. I'm not sure how much it's translating. I think it must be different in different places. I mean, I don't think that if you didn't live in a big city or in a suburb with like amazing stores with prepared food, you would even have a choice. So it's just even it's really only like a some parts of America even have this conversation. Right. And then I also think that even within those, there's so much good prepared food that you may not even, there's just almost very little need to. Yeah, I mean, we're in New York, and I think you're a very packed kitchen uh, (laughs) with lots of foodstuffs. It's Uh, always spilling over. It's always spilling over. There are always going to be sirens. We're in the village. Um, But this, usually most New Yorkers use their ovens for... um, you know, fine lingerie storage mm-hmm. and socks and po- extra pots that they will never pull out and use. And then they go out for takeout Chinese or order seamless. <clears throat> so a working kitchen like this, is this difficult to navigate through the daily routine of cooking stuff every day in here? Do you get used to it? I mean, is there... <laughs> okay, let's put it this way. I see the confines of your kitchen and it's probably eight feet by 10 feet. Um, 
Is there anything that you yearn for? I would like, I'd like more counter space, but I also have this, like, like, I'm sure this is like this particular thing where I'm always working on a lot of different recipes and that's the ingredient spillover. I believe that with a little organization, I could fit just like what my family needs to eat in the cabinets, in the fridge, but I'm always like, there's this overflow of pasta right now because I'm working on three new ZD recipes for articles. So it's like, there's always just something specific where I have more than a home kitchen would need and that's where you end up with these spillovers. Because you're at your office as well, Deb. So I guess what would be nice is maybe just a pantry for like the extra... Right stuff, um, but I always hate that. Like, I mean, definitely, I could use more space. It's a little crazy that I work in a small kitchen. Like, nobody's making me stay in Manhattan in my small kitchen. I'm just kind of stubborn, and we're sort of waiting for the perfect apartment to fall into our laps. And when we do, I might not have a much bigger apartment, apartment, but I might not have a much bigger kitchen. But it'll hopefully have a little. Once I own it, I could probably build it out in a way that I could get it to work for me a little bit more. But it works. I mean, I see the photography online and I see the pictures of the recipes that you're embarking on. And you're writing these beautiful books. <laughs> the first you. book is called The Smitten Kitchen Cookbook and came out in what year? 2012. 2012. And then just in this past year, you've got Smitten Kitchen Every Day, Triumphant and Unfussy New Favorites, which has a beautiful pumana on the cover uh, that's got pecorino and black pepper throughout it. Does it have egg in it? It's not that cacio pepe or anything No, it's not. No, no egg. Um, I just like doing... I really... I have fun playing around with vegetable dishes. I feel like most people know how to cook steak well and if or if they really need to learn they might go to a cook's illustrated or somebody who like you know is a real expert on it or their butcher but i feel like not everybody knows how to turn like potatoes and arugula into dinner or how to do something new with tomatoes i don't i don't think you're alone in that thought i mean i share that on a professional level as a mm-hmm. chef i think chefdom has completely changed in the last 20 to 25 years because americans as chefs finally figured out how to cook Um, vegetables properly Mm -hmm. how to use technique to advance something as simple as a roasted carrot to something Mm -hmm. i can sell because of necessity for a 14 dollars roasted carrot assist to and yogurt salad but we had to because protein prices came up so much Mm -hmm. and there was a change in in health attributes and Mm -hmm. what people really wanted so it, it really changed the game and we had to learn about how to cook brussels sprouts so nobody would complain any longer about how horrid brussels sprouts are but, <laughs> but we they did come a right long way. i mean brussels sprouts were terrible when i was little my mom used to get them in those bird's eye boxes frozen and of course they smelled like swamps yeah they they're cooked. like sulfurous little orbs <laughs> of mush but those fresh i mean they're like little baby crispy cabbages you can roast them they get nutty there's like there's that, so much more you could do with them but we learned texture and we learned application of heat mm-hmm. and and got away from the i always think that we learned to cook proteins from the french and the italians but we learned to cook vegetables from the british for some reason um in the <laughs> late 1940s and it became an abomination of overcooked vegetables mm-hmm. and that was even what my grandmother fed us too yeah. it was you know rutabagas for christmas that were horrid oh i mean God. really bad but i mean if you give me a rutabaga now i can make it be a beautiful thing yeah. and i don't think i'm alone in that in, in in having those skills now so it's really changed the game but your books really latch on to vegetables a lot um yeah i mean they're not yeah it's not vegetarian but i definitely i was a vegetarian for a long time um and i i fully eat meat now but i just i still have that sort of orientation where i like seeing like meat to me is more of a side dish like when i made these zds i put a pot of meatballs on the side i just kind of like letting People adorn vegetables with the meat if they want to, but it doesn't have to be the whole of the dish. It no longer has to be the center of the plate uh, in the meat form. So so these books, these are published by Knopf, Mm -hmm. which I have the most difficult time um, doing. (laughs) How did the first book deal happen? Like how how did did you put together a regular manuscript <laughs> and submit it? Did somebody come and ask you? It was more like somebody came and asked me. It wasn't Knopf specifically, but because I'd had my website for a bunch of years. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you start a blog and probably not as much these days, but it blows up. You might write a book in the first year or two, but I was kind of like 
I don't know, I was resistant. Not that I didn't think cookbooks were great, but I just like doing my website. This is great. I have total editorial control. You're I one of the OGs on of schedule. food websites. Come on. <laughs> I just I just didn't quit. Like everyone else saw the writing on the wall and they got out of there. And I'm like, no, I'm still having fun. I'll just do it, you know, as a hobby if it doesn't work out as a job. I really just enjoyed it. I'm not going to stop cooking and tinkering in the kitchen. I just may stop getting paid for it one day. Um, so because I'd had my site since 2006, though, by the time... 2009 rolled around, I'd definitely been approached by several like agents and editors um, before, but I hadn't really been interested. And then I kind of had a little shift in paradigm, thank God, where I, w- I got pregnant with my um, first kid, my son, and I, I just started thinking like, wait, maybe I do want something more permanent in this world. I Something that you could pick up and hold, not like mommy once had a website. Like, I don't know. I, I got, I finally kind of saw the beauty of cookbooks for the first, not cookbooks that I wasn't already in love with <laughs> for the first time. And that's when I started working on my first one. That's a good so, thing you fell in love with cookbooks because I mean, we're in I'm an apartment with, with about 8,000 cookbooks in it. So I but, always love cookbooks. I just, I guess I didn't know why I needed a cookbook. I didn't get it. I think for most, and I've learned how stupid that is in hindsight, like that most food writers aspire to write a cookbook. That's like the hope and dream. And I was like, really? <laughs> so get stupid. It. I well, love my website. I, you know, <laughs> so if, stupid, but, but I know. your website was a cookbook in all, in yeah. sense and purpose. I mean, people were going there and you were cooking through recipes mm-hmm. and depicting pictures of them. And you do all your own photography? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm Even not. a book? Yeah, I'm not some crazy. I just started doing it and then it became the look of my site and then I couldn't hire. Because I was like, so we're going to hire a photographer. They're like, oh no, no. no, They were like, we want your pictures. And I'm like, but I shoot on auto. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, So I also, to be fair, I, I hadn't heard anything good about cookbook publishing before I wrote my book. I mean, you didn't see a lot of books with, back then it wasn't standard that each um, recipe had a picture. You certainly didn't see process pictures. I just felt, and I had to have everything had two sentence head notes, and I liked talk. You had to write a food essay book or a cookbook. There was very little of both, and I wanted to do both. And so I had to, once somebody told me that I could write the book that I had in mind, then I was like, oh, a cookbook sounds fun. <laughs> um, but it just, I didn't think that the paradigm existed out there, like of how you would do both. And we still struggled with it. We struggled with it with both books. The doing the layout where you have these long head notes without the recipes going on to two pages and upsetting people. How do you write the head notes? Do you write them after you've written the recipe and tested it? I don't know if you can tell, but I talk a lot. So <laughs> No, no, that's good. We like talking a lot. No, that's, that's a, it's kind of like that. I just like it just I just kinda I tend to write them I have this thing where I think it's going to jinx it if I write the head note before I'm happy with the recipe, but I tend to write it like as I'm eating it, like in my head. Okay, that's a good way of doing it. I have a bad habit of writing the recipes, testing them out, doing the photography, and then going back. And you're not and in then, that place anymore. Well, yeah, and you're not in that place anymore, and you're sitting in front of 150 recipes that you all need to write head notes for, and they all want to come out like this. This is a good recipe. You should try it. <laughs> and no, then I'm like hitting my head against a wall with writer's block. I three sentences. No, I'm actually, I've totally done that. When I, it always happens. I think I'm so organized. Obviously, you know I'm not organized, but I always think I'm so organized. And then I hand in the book and they're like, you're missing 10 head notes. And I have to go back and try to get into that space of where I, I was yeah. when I was passionate yeah. about that recipe. And, and yeah, they all come from the same voice when if you just can jot down even three sentences to jump why you where you want somebody to jump into that recipe think of like when you're gonna tell your friend about a a thing you cooked last night or your you know your partner or whatever like you're gonna you're gonna say like I wrote you know yeah you're gonna say like I made this thing last night it had wild rice but it also had this and it was kind of interesting and like that's good and then we had it with this bottle of wine and yeah and it was just the perfect thing because it was raining outside and it was just felt great and we watched this so you need to paint that picture but they do they do they want to know that people Mm -hmm. read cookbooks for a number of different reasons but they really want to sit here in your kitchen in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. Uh, not in a creepy way but they just want to be involved with the come on over over. for at least one more person here. (laughs) so what's the most difficult part of writing a great recipe and then what is an absolutely fabulous recipe that you can re- remember that's not yours? Oh, so wow. So what's the most difficult part of writing a recipe? To me, it's 
illustrating really clearly what what my editor, who's Francis Lamb, was always looking for is um, he's always editing with this note. I need a visual cue. I need a visual cue. And oh. as to what it looks like when, when I'm sauteing this butternut squash, these cubes, I'm looking for this. Them to get. And, you know, we mushy. always, we, uh, we, uh, yeah, we always default to golden brown. But mm-hmm. what is golden brown no. when it's orange? So yeah. that visual cues are something that I stumble with a little bit. But then, you know, and then we always have to write for the fact that America often doesn't cook. So you say it needs four eggs and then you, you know, obviously get a review that says, well, the eggshells were a little difficult to digest. <laughs> But exactly. everything else was fine. <laughs> you want to you want to put see. I tend to want to put all the detail in, but you don't want the recipe to be a hundred pages long because then it no longer right. looks like a simple recipe. But trying to find that right level of detail, trying to anticipate the places where people will run into things. Um, I've been pretty lucky about one thing because my sites had comments from the beginning. One thing I I always hear I always hear when. It browned too much. My carrots burnt after 10 right. minutes. Like all of those things. So I've gotten a little bit better at like anticipating the spots where people are going to start yelling at me. But those are the, uh, those are the sort of weird, uh, unempirical things that we're encountering. Because I don't know how powerful the stove is that exactly. they're working on. I don't know if it's the oven's been calibrated since mm-hmm. 1974 and their 350 is actually... 175. Absolutely. And or, I, I don't know how they, like, oh my God, you know when a recipe has like three cups of spinach, you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Is it loose? Did we just drop the leaves? Yeah. Leaf? Did you chiffonade them and pack them in tightly? I Or um, like almond meal is one of those. So, all of, so that to me is the most stressful thing. It's either that or it's something that I really love and it may sound a little bit weird, but I swear it's amazing. I te- those things don't tend to make it in, but I have like little recipes in my head or that I've made in some way that I have not figured out how I'm going to package it to convince anybody else to make it yet. This happens a lot, actually. Um, let me give you an example. <laughs> my mother-in-law, uh, my husband's family is Russian. They pickle everything. She pickles iceberg lettuce. It's amazing. It is so good. I was lettuce the other day with a chef that who does... A saute of iceberg lettuce oh with God. soy paste and things like that. Okay, it see, my iceberg's moment is coming. I saw, like, Helen Rosner wrote about it in the, in the New Yorker a few months ago. I'm like, this is it. I've been holding this for, like, literally all 12 years I've had my site, trying to figure out how I'm going to talk people. And it is the most amazing thing on a BLT. Okay, so go over how what what's the process? She, I think for the iceberg. Okay, so now I have to remember whether she does. Is it, like, does it have sugar in the pickle? I think she does like the she she sits it out for a day. Okay, like, you know, in the bucket, like she does like, but it's like like you're I, she getting has sauerkraut. her formula, and I don't even want to say because I'm going to quote her on, but it's really like like salt, um, salt, sugar, water, and. That's it, and you sit it out for a day or two. I mean, so first, it's, a, it's like a, it's a very light pickle. Yeah, yeah. It, it. I always thought it was a fridge pickle with like vinegar, but she said she actually just salts it and leaves it out. To so food. it's a it's a lactic lactic acid pickle. I guess just so. like you do a full full sour. Or something exactly, like that. but it's just like a day or so, and it just gets this just crisp iceberg to lettuce. It. It's Does still she take crisp. the core out? She takes the core out and she uses the leaves, and um, they still have some crisp to them. And then she usually puts dill and garlic in because you know Russia. Russians, Russia, yeah, you gotta have dill and garlic. They also put dill and garlic in the uh, pickled watermelon, so it's all relative. But it's so good on yeah, a sandwich. That, that would be good with the. Watermelon. Or I feel like you know pickled like it needs to be some sort of like I don't know fresh stuffed cabbage type thing where you put it mm-hmm. in the pickle like I feel like I'm I, I'm still I there are some things that I would just you just hold on to them forever and you try to figure out how you're gonna talk people like wrapping them. it around like a little kibay or something like that yeah as exactly. a little hors d'oeuvre or something like yeah all right well you're yeah, gonna you're gonna great. you're gonna come up with a way to do it and okay we'll, how to do we it. can team up whenever you want <laughs> we're gonna guess. figure it out honest. so there's sometimes it's just stuff that I love like I love celery I love walnuts people are like those are, those are very hard I love stuff. celery celery is so inexpensive and so wonderful. It's so good. Those celery, almond, parmesan, like crunchy salads with like that. Sometimes they have anchovies in them, but they don't even need it. Like they're so good. Yep. And celery to me, like you go and I love cardoons, but cardoons are hard to find when they're really good. So, and they're especially really I don't even see them really. You don't see them. I but like... I mean, you can mimic a cardoon by taking a really fresh head of celery and quartering it lengthwise and then roasting it aggressively and then serving it with like grated egg on top and a bit of olives and 
and a good amount of black pepper and a drizzle of olive oil and a squeeze of lemon. It is so good. It's like revelatory, simple roasted vegetable that costs at every grocery store like 99 cents a bunch. Well, until you start writing recipes for it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Drive up the cardine rents. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, But no, I I think it's maybe, you know, people always remember eating like they they remember being stringy or getting stuck in their teeth. But I'm I'm talking about slicing it. Yeah, against the grain. Yeah, there's no, I also, I have Or you can peel it. I don't think it's an either either book, but it's on my site where I have this... um, Egg salad with like lightly pickled celery in it, and that you just soak it in a little vinegar, salt, sugar mix. But egg salad needs egg salad and chicken salad. If they don't have celery, to or me, something they are not real. Yeah, that, they need celery. My husband's always like, "Why are you putting celery in this?" No, they, <laughs> that, 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 that crunch is ubiquitous with it. It is so important. In, I need in those that little, dish. yeah, and a little like lightly pickled just just wakes the whole thing up. And um, then sautéed really thinly sliced celery with salmon is great with a lot of dill and lemon zest and things like that. So yeah, celery is like the unheralded staple of the foundational vegetables all right so, so. team celery team pickled iceberg what other i'm totally totally into fennel that fennel fennel is such a hard sell love love fennel Actually, i think this one i got i did think a bunch of people told me this is the first time they liked fennel it was just thinly shaved um again with an arugula salad like a, a mustard vinaigrette which i think you know that's that's with a with lemon and olive oil and mustard fennel is so good it is so good i make a fennel slaw that i have been for years of just shaving fennel against the grain and then tossing it with lemon juice and a little bit of vinegar and olive oil and salt and then letting it sit and then you hit it with a little ton of fresh mint to the very end and because so it just macerates on the counter and loosens up the, the the structure of it as it macerates it's just delectably good and just has a high amount of acidity So what are Americans, what, what, what comments are you getting? What, what's really beloved these days of the recipes you do at smittenkitchen.com and why? And how has that changed in the last, you know, number of years? What are America's palates going to? I definitely think, you know, I mean, you have the whole, a lot of people who've realized that they have gluten allergies, but beyond that, I feel like a lot of people are just trying to move away from bready based meals. They want bread as an accent, but not as the center. And because of that, I think there's a lot more, just a general interest in a vegetable or meat focused dish that, you know, the bread, and I actually, I mean, I love bread, but I just, I'd rather eat it when it's good and worth it right. and not just fill up on it. Um, something I did in this book was called, um, it's, I call it pizza beans, but that's because I have little kids and I have to sell them on it. But it's basically like a big ziti, but you use large white beans mm-hmm. and you cook it in the tomato sauce. We use some sauteed vegetables and then you cover it with cheese and you broil it like a baked CD. Like you're making like, a casserole. You're making a casserole. A bean okay, casserole. we put some garlic bread on the side because we still have to get the kids to the table. But it was like just that idea of like it's it's usually done with pasta or something heavy and the beans Could have Could you do this, it with canned beans? You can. I will say that, you know, if you They're can get those gigantes. Yeah. I Yo, mean, you're really talking depends. about Corona I'm, I'm talking, yeah, gigantes. And that's actually was my inspiration was like Greece 20 years ago going there and having like the big white beans cooked in tomato sauce there it's done yeah. with dill and yeah. often served with meat but I just wanted to do like a Italian American that's totally cool um so that was that was something that I didn't expect to be able to sell people on but they I it was it was fun I think it's a fun way to use beans where you might have used something heavier so Americans are requesting more beans less bread more vegetables more vegetables. I think they're really their palates want bigger and bolder flavors because of just global aspects of food that we're seeing. So a lot more umami. Mm-hmm. I think pickling's pretty big mm-hmm. for palates. A lot right more. Now. It's getting a lot easier to. But soy-based stuff, kimchi-based stuff, mm-hmm. things that really have a big pepper kick are really uh-huh. big. Not just for the heat, but for that really getting your palate working type of sensation. I don't think continental flavors and the blandness of, you know, 1970s continental food is the thing anymore at all, which is great. Mm-hmm. We like that because we like big flavors. Um, I think we're getting away from butter and cream a little bit, which is fine. I think that there's a hipness to a lot of European food um, and Eastern European food and going into Middle Eastern food based on the popularity of like Otto Lange's books and things uh-huh. like that. I think... 
the butter and cream thing is always, I definitely think we're getting away from it, but then I also think that we're getting away from the low, we've definitely gotten away from the low fat thing. Vegan, vegan is really big actually. Yeah, I guess it is. I um, I know it's it's so. <laughs> my sister <laughs> is, is vegan? vegan now. I mean, I don't know how long. I mean, maybe forever, but we'll see. Um, but I think if she's she, not just going through a phase. I don't know. I okay. can't say that. That's rude. do you want me to call her? Yeah, I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to kill me if she hears this. Um, so anyway, let's just say not my sister. But no, I know. Or people, like, they go through a phase where they just want to take a break from all the the clutter in their diet as they see it. Um, so yes, I think that's um, who buys margarine, I think. But Somebody they call buys it, margarine. Yeah, what there's a brand of um, vegan butter, Earth. Is it Earth Balance? Uh, Earth, yeah, I think it is. Earth Balance. Yeah. One of those brands. <laughs> I forgive me. After like years with babies, I'm like, I always mix it up with Earth's Best, which is a kid brand of like wipes and stuff. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> it's just, I, I've, I've many times said the wrong word there. <laughs> that's, um, I that's, think it's Earth that, Balance. Um, is a very popular, and I know a I lot of my readers, they take, they take the cookie recipes and the cake recipes. And, and they, they use that. And the frosting. And they say it has a really great flavor. None of that oily heaviness that we associate with margarine. No, I think the recipes are much more adaptable than ever to... Uh, can be made gluten-free, can be made lactic-free, um, and dairy-free, and so it, it, because of products that are on the market. I tend not to use a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm a restaurant chef, so I slip in two pounds of butter in every portion of mashed potatoes. And everyone's like, why do my mashed and potatoes not taste know, this good? I always like, wow, <laughs> these like, are really good. It's the butter. And I'm like, yeah, you're about to die. Uh, but no, they enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, they do. And that's the important thing. Um, so back to, uh, I, I wanna, I'm going to cycle back because I'm erratic. Um, what's what's a amazing recipe that sticks out in your mind over the years that you've just always thought was just a perfectly written recipe? Hmm. Anything come to mind? Mine is Paul Bertoli. He was one of the chefs at Chez Panisse in the early days. He later did Olivetto in Oakland. And he wrote a lot of the recipes, and I think the second Japanese book. And his his recipe for risotto was like three pages long. It kind of just had this beautiful, brilliant ending about just being, yeah, you know what, it's done, eh? You know, it's. But but at that point in time in the recipe, you did know when it was done. It was illustrative to define what you were looking for, and that time at that point wasn't really necessary. That you understood what the end result was, and that to me. Sort of define something, something as irascible and difficult to pin down in timing as risotto was very clear. I find risotto okay. So I'm I definitely know you from Top Chef, right? I've seen you right. on TV many times as a. I don't claim anything about okay. that, but yes. Okay. okay. All I'm saying is that I the I mean, this risotto works in every time we used to see somebody making risotto on the show. They we're like, fail. don't do it. We're like, don't, don't do, do it. The risotto. Don't do grits. Don't do risotto. Don't do risotto. Don't do grits. Stick to scallops. Everybody likes yeah. scallops on the show. I can't imagine how many scallops you had to eat over the years. Um, separate many. conversation. But risotto is so tricky. I don't like making risotto for friends because there's this one point where the rice is not overcooked and it still spills out on the plate, which As is something I remember Tom Caligio once saying. Right. And that moment is about two minutes wide. And then it and goes And then away. after that, it's gone and the rice is soft. How could you ever serve that? And then it all crimps up into a lump. Hence, you get this <laughs> pile of risotto standing like a mini mound on a plate or it looks like oatmeal on a bowl yeah yeah it's, <laughs> and it's just wrong and it's glue it's so and it's glue. glue and the cheese all of that cheese and the butter they start to thicken as but that's cool. the key is you need to work that butter in like you're emulsifying with the butter and really work your wooden spoon to whip it in at the very end and to give it loft I'm going to look up that recipe because I have that book, it's and also because I, as I said, I don't think I, I would, I would never make risotto for somebody. It's a good recipe. It really is. It clarified a lot at a young age. I mean, I'm trying to think of professionally the books that really kind of made a lot, had a lot of influence on the food I was doing, and I'm predominantly a French kitchen, so it was odd that I was kind of branching out. But this is when I was really young, like 18. And by going and buying the Rogers and Gray, the first River Cafe cookbook, mm-hmm. and it was it could be called the River Cafe cookbook in Canada, but it had to be called the Rogers and Gray book here because there was a River Cafe in Brooklyn and still is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was seminal for its simplicity in looking at 
concrete and core ideas of Italian food presented in just the freshest manner possible. And it was really unadulterated food. It was just so purist. That was wonderful. And then the Chapinese books were another just revelatory look at how you take something so simple as wonderful food and just treat it with care and precision and arrive at results that are great. The cassoulet recipe um, in in one of the Chapinese books is another one that's just so long and contrived and crazy, but it made me do it and made me do yeah. this really exciting thing where at 18 or 19, you're like, wow, this is a clarion call. So amazing. That's what cookbooks can do and that's what they should do. But it's so hard to get beyond that writer's block sometimes and make it that way. They probably wrote while they were eating it. They probably wrote while they were eating it. I don't, <laughs> now I, I have often, to. I often have my laptop right in there and I'm working and I'm taking notes in my laptop, like in the document with the. Do you, do you find the people who are, are smitten kitchen regulars online, are they cooking with their laptops or iPads in the kitchen? I think iPads. I think it's very okay. common. Yeah. I know, yeah. I'm always terrified to cook with a computer in the kitchen. I, I'm, I'm living, I'm living on the edge, especially because it's right next to the faucet, and I have kids, and we have a sprayer on the faucet. Right, so yeah, as that's, soon as they come home, I get super stressed. because abundant amount I, we of all, fun. We all know how this story is going to end. Deb was three quarters done with her third book, and then yeah. the hose hit. Exactly. I do try to save everything on Dropbox and not locally, but still, it's it's going. It's We all know how it's like. It's like when you're... I don't know, whenever you're, like, you're putting something near the sink, that anything, you just know it's going to fall in. You know how you're going to lose your phone one day, right? Like, yeah. you know it, but you don't, you still do it. You just have to wait till that day happens and then Yep, you know it's gonna, it. the phone's going to fall in the toilet one day. <laughs> These things are inevitable. I mean, I was thinking, I was like, the sink, but you know what yep, I meant. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, so um, the opposite of the toilet, um, the, um, the Zuni Cafe roast chicken. Oh. But who was, I mean, I'm sure somebody was, but this idea that she always just salted her, her birds for a couple days before and it made the skin so crisp and the meat was so juicy. And you cooked that recipe. I cooked that recipe. I still cook it like every week. It is a seminal, amazing seminal recipe. Seminal recipe. And I want to I say don't do all the steps of the bread salad and everything like that, but it is the core good. way um, of, of roasting a chicken. So it's salted heavily inside and out. Um, about a day beforehand, placed on a plate and stuck in a fridge uncovered. And then you take it out and you blot away all the juices and you get it in a high heat oven for generally just over an you start hour. It, you start it breast side down, I want to say. And then you can invert it. I literally make this every two years and I'm still like, I don't remember yeah. it. Um, but every, so I am obsessed with like kind of just reworking recipes and trying to make them a little more human and a little less chefy just so more people will make them and, you know, nothing matters measured in teaspoons, no, no savory ingredient measured in teaspoons. And I have tried so many times to kind of streamline that recipe. And you can't. You can't. You have to keep it the way it is. And so I'm thinking of these multi-page recipes. And that's one that there's just no reason to. There's no benefit. And Judy there Rogers was just ahead of her time in so many ways. That restaurant was just amazing back in the day when she was with us. But... Um, you know, her her head captains and the staff bought that restaurant, mm -hmm. and they're still doing that chicken, and yeah. it is still amazing. So really And that good. restaurant wedged into that little triangular corner, eating <laughs> that and drinking fine burgundy is mm. something that everybody in America All right, I gotta go. Do. I can't be in New York anymore. I, <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> I mean, Zuni, Zuni, which is on Market Street in San Francisco, to me is, uh, you know, it's the, to me it's the Gramercy Tavern of... San Francisco. Very much It is so. such an iconic restaurant and so important to that that has driven everything else around it and its community. But that chicken, oh man. I'm like, but what's the Gramercy Tavern iconic dish? That's a good question. Because I, I feel like it's had a few waves of... It has. Of, and Michael Anthony's been in charge for a very long time and now. And he's got a couple dishes that he's I really got, like. But I can't think of any... his handle with fish is... I feel like if Danny Martyr's listening, it's like, don't you know about that? Well, <laughs> We're missing something, but I... Yeah, but also to a point about Danny Meyer... It, with it being unquestionably an iconic American restaurant and to me the iconic restaurant in New York, it is Danny Meyer. That's the important dish mm -hmm. in Gramercy Tavern is that, that he has touched that whole place with that, such an authentic zeal of hospitality that it just, it breathes happiness and joy when you walk in. 
when they started doing that vegetable tasting menu, I mean, it's got to be like 15 years now, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. That changed my life. I was actually still vegetarian back then. But even when I started eating meat, I still loved going there. there Show me 15 cool things that you can do with vegetables. I'm so much more inspired. Again, when I want a steak, I'm going to get a really good, perfectly cooked steak somewhere. But if I want vegetables, inspire me, please. But that's the thing is that chefs and and Smitten Kitchen and other websites have really changed the way we cook vegetables. So, yeah. And I think it's finally permeated in the households and really made a difference. So in the way we eat every day. You know, I can't think of America enjoying kale or Brussels sprouts or broccoli at home that much years ago. But now they can be made into wonderful things in a couple of simple technical steps that everybody can understand. And I have no idea why that we kept that from America for so long. I feel like a lot of what we're doing with the kale and Brussels sprouts and broccoli, though, are things that we've always known have worked for food. We just hadn't applied them to vegetables yet. I mean, what are we looking, you know, Pomzana, you know, but trying to turn it into salad. Or here, these are shortcakes, which I'm sure you're extremely familiar with in the South. But I just did a tomato salad and whipped goat cheese and then a scallion biscuit. So now you have a summer tomato. And this is on the cover of this 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 I'm sorry. And it looks like strawberry shortcake in the savory style with tomatoes. (laughs) And it looks beautiful. And that, but that, but, but that is turning food on its head, and I think that that's why we've gotten better at figuring out how to apply skill sets to food and really broaden the scope of good food. I think that vegetables became much more a focus, and I think I touched on this earlier in restaurants because of higher accelerating mm-hmm. costs of proteins, and and changing in health and what people wanted different diets coming around and fads and things like that that chefs had to address. So we were kind of pinned up against a wall to make sure that we could cover all those bases. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn how to cook carrots again. But when people have carrots that are, I mean, I'm sure you've had the nomad carrot tartare. Right. That is like, Everyone's favorite dish. It's one. It, that's got to be it. That has to be one of the best things that's ever happened to carrots. The Nomad Crudite is is phenomenal with the radishes it? and the butter. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, well, because it's butter. Um, <laughs> Daniel, <'cause> it's, <laughs> the I know. Is the, there anything he can do? What did? Oh, that um, that snow pea, like cacio e pepe. Oh thing. yeah, that one with the uh, pecorino, that salad, and uh, apparently somebody who you know who used to work in the kitchen was saying. I mean, there's literally a person just doing the snow peas all day. Like that's how many Uh, they need and how carefully they need to be prepared, which is amazing to me. Um, Okay, we're just like, I'm just, um, you're, see... Your editor may not agree, but I think you're very good at giving context. Um, so oh, because you keep you, I keep man- mentioning random dishes, and then you talk to tell people where they can find them. That's good. Let's talk about social media and what it impacts in your world and how it impacts mine. Um, For me, it's not exactly, I'm not so uh, maybe astute or smart as a human to realize that maybe I've created a brand. You definitely have. My brand is more, what I do on social media is the, the restaurants have their own. Things right, so you can be yourself. So I can be myself. Just share your interests. Complete jackass, uh, (laughs) rouser. Now, now, I was, I was, I was actually looking at your Instagram before, and I actually thought it was, it was, it was, it was refreshingly real. Nobody's holding. I don't. I did not get the impression that anyone else is holding the phone for you, captioning and 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 tagging brands on you know your T-shirt or something like that. No. Um. So there's something really genuine and real, and I'm sure people relate to that, and it probably probably get a lot of comments. On what seemingly simple things because people feel like they're really talking to you because they are. They are, yeah. But it's it's led me to, you know, peel back on maybe the amount of time I spend on it. <laughs> to me, I, I, Twitter is my political universe and I can um, spend all day, you know, Tom Cleakey is another guy who does too, mm-hmm. spend all day, you know, rabble-rousing politically about things in this crazy, mm-hmm. changing world. Um, and then, but Instagram is kind of my pers- my visual perspective mm-hmm. on the world, and so it contains a lot of doodles and stuff like that. It probably doesn't do much from my brand, but you have a gazillion followers on Instagram. But I also I do the dual um, 
streams too. So I have this Smitten Kitchen. Even right. though it's just me and I am the brand, the brand is me. Um, I have a Smitten Kitchen stream, and that probably has the larger numbers um, yeah. by a bit. And then I just have a personal one, which is just because I felt like if my site is about food, let me just stick to food, stick to cooking, stick to things stay that relate to. Stay in your lane. I stay in my lane on Smitten <laughs> Kitchen. And then, um, I but if I'm traveling or something, like we were in Washington D.C. this weekend, and I want to share little bits and pieces and yeah. places that we. This doesn't relate to Smitten Kitchen as a site or cookbook at all so i just put it on my own personal one which also has some following but not nearly as much yeah but i, would but think I, that I if think it's I, important to have that demarcation because yeah. i'm not sure if benton kitchen is the place to show pictures from the smithsonian air and space museum but it's totally cool yeah so totally. Should. i make no promises to be interesting in my personal life right no no <laughs> I, mean, I even make no that promises it's filtered either. i'm not like you know i'm not sharing like what my kids are doing every day because that's their lives too right but, uh, but it's because it's a public stream but um yeah so it's the similar thing but it's still it's maybe not as off the cuff as yours and maybe i should work on your that. kids Kids uh, uh, are, are nine and three. Nine and three, yeah. Does the nine-year-old have a cell phone? No, don't even tell him that that's an okay. option. No, <laughs> he an totally, option. he totally, he wants one so badly. I was like, why don't we work on you <laughs> getting ready for school on time? Yeah. I'm, I'm being polite yeah. here. I'm like, why don't we worry well, about then, you? See, How my argument getting... would be like, well, maybe I need an alarm clock on a cell phone. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a point, especially as a city kid, because he's kind of at the age where we're almost at the point, and I'm glad he's not here to hear this, where he could probably be going places and running errands on his own, but I'd want him to have a cell phone before he did that because I wouldn't be able to track him. And people question that, but I mean, I, I was walking to school in a city when I was like, Six, seven, really? by myself. Where did you grow <laughs> up in? Fun. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, okay. um, but then spent a lot of time oh, in the Canadians American South. So nice. Oh, they are so nice, non-judgmental, very kind. So the ad for New York. <laughs> Yeah, the yeah, kind of the anti-New York. But I mean, I'm walking over here today. I saw tons of kids who were, you know, probably grade five, grade six, just cavorting together on their way home from yeah. school and. I mean, it was mellow. It seemed totally safe. I think a high concentration of people actually makes people nicer. I yeah, I think so. Part. I don't think. I just think you just you just don't talk to strangers. That's all. Like when right. when I when I'm booked touring room, walking around in another city, and somebody says hi to me, I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I Whoa, hate buddy. that. I'm like, that's a little weird. And I'm like, no, Deb, that's what that's what. But I'm just that's, it's not no, my. Deb, that's what humans do. In other no, places. in New York, if someone's like, hey, how are you doing? You're like, oh, get hey, crazy person. No, thanks. <laughs> Hold your kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, you try not to, but you know, um, you know, you try to just just roll with it. But it, it doesn't mean the same thing in New York, unfortunately. But that's what a high concentration of people do. So he doesn't have a cell phone. He would definitely like one. He's probably old enough to walk places on his own. But I don't know. Is what's unsafe about him walking places on his own the world, or is it the fact that most kids don't go places on their own at his age, and so therefore he sticks out? If oh, he does? I think kids in New York do though. I think kids are raised differently in the inner city. Let's see. I think a lot's going to change coddled. in the next couple of years for him when he's going to be in middle school, and I'm not yes. going to be able to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it changed. My, I've got my two girls are 14 and 16 now, and it's crazy how they change. Back to social media. I mean, it, it, it is a necessity for you. Yeah. I mean, it gets new recipes out there in hands mm-hmm. and drives traffic to the site. You know. But what new things can people show or what do people really want on social media? Like, what do they want on the Smitten Kitchen Instagram? Oh, my goodness. Video. What's huge? Give it to video. Everybody wants you to. But I I think that I always just think of it as a way to reach people. And it's like, if people want to meet you on Facebook, I'll be on Facebook. If people want to meet you on Twitter, I don't think what I do is what I do on the website and what I do in the cookbooks. Like, that's writing recipes and talking about it where I got there. Everything else is just hopefully just leading people back. So I would think that what you do is what you do in your cookbooks and what you do in your restaurants and any shows you're working on. Everything else is just a way to broadcast it and tell people that. I also like that you can have more casual conversations and, like, you know, with Twitter, or you can have a more focused interest, or you can share things from other sites that may not make sense on your own, you know, streams. Um, but I, I think it's a necessity, but I don't think, I don't think you have to make it your whole life. I think that when, I don't think people are like, oh my God, there's no new post from this person today. I'm so upset. I'm unfollowing their site, or I'm, yeah, unfo- I'm never yeah. going to the restaurant because they haven't posted in two Look, weeks. Well, you can change your last name to Kardashian if you want, but yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, those are the only people in this world that people want that continuity of content from I think but but what I'm saying is I think people only notice when you show up they don't right. notice when you've when gone you're not there 
Exactly. Yeah. So if you're not posting every day, I th- always think there's this idea that you need to have content, 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 and I don't think it's true. I think you need to have good content when you show up. So I'm looking at one of the cookbooks in your, uh, in, from your vast amounts of cookbooks and piles <laughs> that are strategically located on the floor and yeah, on bookshelves okay. uh, in, a, in a variety of ordering systems. I think uh, that notice from uh, that, the publicist. I, I do love my, the fact that this one, uh, this one has oh, a, a sticky note I see with why, because it's from Knopf, so they sent it over. A fun one uh, <laughs> with a smiley face. And it is a fun one because it's the new Joe Beef cookbook from the uh, Montreal Restaurant Group. Uh, called Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. And that's David Mac- uh, McMillan and Fred, Fred Moray, who are uh, dear friends of mine and wonderful, wonderful humans. And this is a So you've definitely hilarious. gone up there and had oh, the, yes. uh, the experience. I I've lived only in had Montreal ex- for a long time. But okay. We actually, you, back in, it would have been 1991, I was cooking at a restaurant called Buena Note on Saint Laurent in the Plateau in Montreal. And they were cooking across the street at a place called The Globe. Wow, <laughs> Both really? of them together. So, yeah, we have this crazy, weird history of bumping into each other. But, yeah, I go up to Montreal a lot. And I think Montreal is, outside of New York, my favorite dining city in North America these days. Sure it's fun. just phenomenal. It's really fun. French is going strong up there. French is going I mean, strong up there. but Not I mean, just in the language, but, yeah, but they're really innovating it. They really are. And they're, and they're using a lot of Canadian product. And they're really giving an identity to Canadian food, which has been long a head scratch around what is Canadian food and everybody's like well it's poutine and tortillere and maple but syrup Canada is this is really massive huge. country Vancouver and is like a different continent yeah, from Montreal and I think people totally don't agree. really understand that and so is Nova Scotia and the Brunswick and PI yeah, but the big they thing they have their own culture and their own flavors and their own uh, agriculture so what we identify as Canadian food is typically really more regionalized Quebecois food mm-hmm. um, the food of Quebec of the province of Quebec because then if you go to, um, you know, around Newfoundland and Fogo Island, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth, it's all built around cod and snow crab and preserves and pickles and potatoes because mm-hmm. that's what's in Newfoundland. Uh, but Quebecois food is really is interesting. And these guys have just, they always push the limits. This is their second cookbook. And it's just beautifully written. It's great, really good photographs. But it's just, it's fun. They're fun. They're fun. They're really They're having fun. Just, They're not we're concerned passing. with. We're looking at this yeah, page, we're looking which at is this microwave page. foie gras with Fred Moran. Um, did I say his last name correctly? Yep. I mean, I've met him, Frederick but I just don't. Um, and he's got this. I don't know. Is this a modern microwave? It's or is a, this a microwave, microwave from the seventies. And he's about to cook foie gras in it, and it's kind of this. It look the layout of it the makes recipe. it look like uh, serves know, eight to ten. And um, yeah, so he's telling, he's teaching us. How, I mean, I love it. That is so modern and fun. But, but there's there's a sense of humor to it. A little bit like the Brooks Headley. Um, is that yes. am I saying it right? Uh, the uh, the um, South uh, Superiority uh, Burger. God, Brooks yes. used to be right the in this neighborhood. Chef. Yeah, he's a punk rock guy um, who is a musician and a pastry chef, and he was the pastry chef at Del Posto for years. And and he's uh, a fantastic. Um, what am I? Superiority Burger, right? Yeah. A few blocks from Which here, is a and it's vegan inc- restaurant that's phenomenally interesting. Is it vegan? I know it's vegetarian. I know it's vegetarian. Oh Maybe it's gosh. not vegan. I should know. I go there a lot. Yeah. I don't. I feel like it's not vegan. I still feel, but healthy it's so. When I leave. Yeah, I know. I'm very earnest. I yeah. eat fried vegetables, so it must be a salad. <laughs> no, they, um, they, they do. Yeah, it, in in style though, the the cookbook offbeat, doing their own thing style. I very I very much relate to both of them. Well, yeah, it's it, but it's so it's honest and authentic, and and the purity of being sort of punk rock people like the, all these people are is kind of taking a different look at a commonly done system of food and relaying recipes and turning on its head a little bit and having it fun, mm-hmm. having it be fun. But that's what the Joe Beef restaurants are; they're Jeez, just this fun. Looks so good. This looks so good. Look how happy they are. They're having fun. <laughs> and this is the Anglais Sous-Marin uh, Special AA. See, I would recognize um, a hanger steak anywhere. That's my favorite. I saw that and I'm like, that's a hanger steak. Why is hanger steak good to you? I don't know. I feel like I, I because I can't mess it up. I'm not Okay, I can mess it up, but I mess it up a lot less often. Remember, I'm not working on like good um, 
you know, I don't have great kitchen equipment here. I have a pretty dinky stove. The Spinton kitchen is not state of the art, but no, it's, it is. It is a well. rental kitchen where they were like, we could have spent less. <laughs> yeah. we, we could have spent more on your oven, but we didn't want to. And I know I could like go buy a new one and replace it, but I'm very stubborn. And I'm like, if this oven works for other people, I'll make it work for me. We have a teeny tiny grill outside that's completely illegal. So I didn't mention that. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to have not in New York. In New York. Well, you're not no. supposed <laughs> to have them within 10 feet of a building, which is difficult if your terrace isn't more than 10 feet wide. Um, so anyway, um, but I find it, I just, for some reason, I just don't mess it up as much. I feel like I can do a pretty good job of keeping it black on the outside. I like a little char and still very pink on the inside. Yeah. I mean, I love hanging steak, hanger steak, which is always called like the one of the butcher cuts that people used to take home as butchers because mm-hmm. nobody really knew about it. It was a smaller muscle structure. Um and it's kind of, uh, it's like a oddly shaped small tenderloin. And it's got one striding piece of sinew in between that you have to get out. But other than that, it's got, it's got a flavor that's almost awfully. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a little trace of sort of liveriness and kidney overtones, but that's totally palatable. only makes it a little more exciting. It just has a base minerality to it. I love that's it really uh, good. with like bright things on top i always i'm you know i started eating it at um at barbudo in the west village i love the way i know jonathan waxman is so famous for his chicken but i always get the hanger steak there and he usually has some roasted vegetables that are also a little bit marinated that will be like roasted leeks that he's tossed into a vinaigrette whatever he's got seasonal and going on that day and then he'll kind of top it with that and it's always or he'll do it with one of his salsa verdes and it's just has such a freshness to it waxen's got a good grasp of sort of that provencal sort of use of vinaigrettes and vegetables that's so good i feel like Um, he almost never i mean i know he uses butter sometimes but i feel like i don't know ever uses cream He'll put a little butter in that gnocchi and a couple of the pastas, but he's that's really not like, a little bit of butter like, in that gnocchi. I, think <laughs> I know, like I know. I watched you make. He's like, yeah, we're just gonna put a tablespoon in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably just the one he makes for the camera. Um, but for the most part, though, it's not. It's not creamy. There are no creamy sauces there. Everything there is like punchy and bright. And, and uh, yeah, Barbudo is one of those restaurants. It's, it's I, I love restaurants and I love going to restaurants. I love eating out, and they're very. But there are very few restaurants that are to me something food that appeals to me virtually every day of my life and a barbudo is one of them that's exactly what we say we actually that's probably the restaurant i go to the most in new york and the reason is that i feel like it's it's a weekday night place you're not you're not going to walk out of there feeling like oh my god what did i eat i got to go to the gym twice tomorrow like it's not that kind of meal i feel like everything has a kind of fresh brightness to it that it just doesn't feel heavy the portions aren't crazy there's no bread on the table that's going to distract you from your meal the kale salad is so famous good. yeah yeah it's really yeah, good russ and daughters is another restaurant that i could pretty much eat at every day I really i need a nap food. after that i like yeah, but, but it's I just love i love napping i'm 47 nowadays <laughs> I, gotta, I, gotta say I really adore napping when do you have time to nap i don't unfortunately <laughs> so i don't russ and daughters I'm, I'm sure you've been to via carada too i'm now we're yeah via carada and Bouvet are both so favorites good. they're just wonderful and her sense of design is so good and these are all you know you guys should be writing this down but we'll put it up on <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram, too, of these lists of places that we're talking about because there, there's so many to really look out for in New York if you're traveling through. Deb Perelman, it has been a delight to be in Smitten Kitchen tonight with you, hanging out and talking about food and cookbooks and the things we do. And uh, it, it's been a great discussion. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming over. This episode of Hugh Atchison's Jurors the Pop was taped by Brian Blum on location in Manhattan in Deb Perelman's little apartment. Scott Porch produces the show and Mackenzie Mazzell edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison's Jurors the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and come back on Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well, be swell. <laughs>